The title of today's message, Post-Diluvian Sin, Betrayal, and Curse. Post-Diluvian is post-flood. Post-Diluvian Sin, Betrayal, and Curse. Genesis 9, verses 18 through 29. Let's read there together. Now the sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. And Noah began to be a farmer, and he planted a vineyard. Then he drank of the wine and was drunk and became uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two sons outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on their shoulders, and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father's nakedness. So Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him. Then he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem. And may Canaan be his servant. And Noah lived after the flood 350 years, so all the days of Noah were 950 years and he died. Post-Diluvian, sin, betrayal, and curse. Lord willing, we'll finish this chapter today under that title. First point, a fresh start. A fresh start. Return with me back to verses 18 and 19. A fresh start. Now the sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Ham was the father of Canaan, These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. A fresh start. Now the sons of Noah went out of the ark. We have just come out of several chapters of God's judgment upon mankind in the form of a global flood. Noah, Shem, Ham, Japheth, and their wives have just come out of the ark where they were enclosed and protected from the wrath of God. We have a literal Noah, a literal ark, a literal global flood that bottlenecked the human genome down to Noah's three sons and their three childbearing wives, and this interesting emphasis on Ham's youngest son, Canaan. Notice, now the sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Ham was the father of Canaan. Why weren't any of the other sons of Ham mentioned? Why weren't any of the sons of Shem and Japheth mentioned? It's odd, is it not? But I do think there's an explanation. Moses is the author of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Moses was penning Genesis 9, 18, relatively shortly before he was to deliver God's command for Israel to conquer Canaan and take their land, the land that God gave to their father Abraham, his son Isaac, and his son Jacob, who became Israel before them. But we'll get to more of that later. But for now, note that this is an interesting phenomenon here, that one of Ham's sons is drawn out and highlighted, none of Shem's or Japheth's sons are. An interesting note. 
We find in Isaiah 54, 9, that Isaiah believed in a literal Noah, a literal worldwide flood. And we find this throughout Scripture. This account of these men who literally went into this ark, who literally survived a global flood, is consistently upheld as not some analogy or some nifty story to teach us some spiritual truth, but the reality of a holy God bringing holy judgment on sinful mankind, save Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Isaiah 54, 9 says, For this is like the waters of Noah to me. For as I have sworn, the waters of Noah would no longer cover the earth. So have I sworn that I would not be angry with you, nor rebuke you. There are many more. Here's another. The Lord Jesus himself in Matthew's gospel, chapter 24, 36 through 44, clearly believes in a literal Noah and a literal worldwide flood. The Lord Jesus says, But of that day and hour no one knows, speaking of the coming judgment, when the Lord Jesus returns, of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, the historic day of judgment, but as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. We find the Lord Jesus upholding the literal account of Genesis and the historic event of Noah's flood. He does so again in Luke 17, 26. And as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, and they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Verse 30, even so will it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. In our day today, a day where debauchery is celebrated openly without shame. Men are given to their sins, assuming that life will go on, assuming that God's mercy will continue and sin will be unchecked. The Lord historically brought sin to an end with a global flood and the Lord will bring sin to an end in one final manner with a great deluge of fire releasing the gluons of this universe and the heavens and the earth will be consumed in an instant and there'll be no place to hide, Scripture tells us. And all will stand before God, the judge. In 2 Peter chapter 2, it says, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and deliver them into the chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, one of eight people, Noah, his wife, and his three sons and their wives. Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. Ungodly is the very definition of our current culture. And they are suppressing the truth in unrighteousness, the truth of the holy creator God, who created the heavens and the earth by divine fiat he spoke into existence, the truth of God's global judgment with a worldwide flood and the truth 
of the coming of the king with judgment again and the sword of his mouth laying sinners low. But make no mistake, that judgment will come just as it did historically. This is no fictional account. It's no spiritual analogy. It's the reality of a holy God bringing just judgment upon sinners with the exception of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Not that they weren't sinners, but they were saved by grace alone through faith in the one true God entering the ark that ultimately God provided. The ark being a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we are outside of the ark of Christ, we will perish in our sins in the coming deluge of fire. Oh, we must warn men and women to flee to Christ, the only ark, the only vessel of salvation. In verse 19, it says, These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. And our atheist friends stand and mock. Our Big Bang cosmologist friends stand and mock. Our evolutionist friends stand and mock at such a statement. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. Of course, they mock back in Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 when God creates male and female. They mock in chapter 2 when we find the male and female created are Adam and Eve taken from his side to be his helpmate, his beloved wife, woman taken from man, Eve, mother of all living. And they mock again at a worldwide flood and then they mock at the reality, the reality that we are all descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And this is a bottleneck in the genome of mankind. Adam and Eve produced their children, their children produced their children, and so on and so forth. And the genetic code spread out a bit. And in that code, a few mutations came post-fall. This is all post-fall, of course. No mutations before the fall. But the fall took place before any child was born. And so mutations begin to add up. And then all of humanity is wiped out except for Shem, Ham, and Japheth and their wives. And so all of humanity again comes forth from this family. These three brothers and three wives. And there is some evidence that two of the wives may have been sisters. And you say, what? Yes, there is some evidence that two of the wives may have been sisters. Not in the Scriptures, actually. The Scriptures don't tell us much, but in the genome. In the genome itself. It shouldn't shock you that the scientific evidence coming forth in the study of genetic code points back to the Genesis account of recent creation. A recent and real Adam and Eve and a worldwide global flood that wiped out all of mankind except Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Verse 19 stands as God's inerrant word with or without the aid of mankind's errant science. But it seems our scientific observations in the field of DNA actually point solidly back to God's record in Genesis of a recent Adam and Eve, roughly 6,000 years ago, and a global flood approximately 4,500 years ago that bottlenecked the genetic code down to the three sons of Noah and their wives from which the whole earth was populated. Now, Books have been written and articles have been written. I'm going to give you a few excerpts. I'm not a scientist. I'm not a scientist. But there is good science behind this, and it's really quite glorious. From an article 
put out by the Institution for Creation Research, an excellent ministry, titled The New DNA Study Confirms Noah. New DNA Study Confirms Noah by Dr. Brian Thomas, published in 2016. It says this, Evolutionary teachings hold that all mankind arose from a population of ape-like ancestors from which chimpanzees also evolved. But Genesis, the rest of the Bible, and Jesus teach that all mankind arose from Noah's three sons and their wives. A new analysis of human mitochondrial DNA exposes two new evidences that validate the biblical beginnings of mankind. Mitochondrial DNA comes from mothers. Mother egg cells transmit their mitochondrial DNA into the cellular mitochondria of every child born. This unique annex of DNA contains 16,569 bases. There will be a test afterwards. I hope you're taking notes. That encode vital cellular information like an instruction manual. Scientists have been comparing the genetic differences between every major people group around the globe. How did those differences arise? Assuming that God placed the ideal mitochondria sequence into Eve, all those differences arose by mutation since the Genesis 3 curse about 6,000 years ago. Other scientists measured the rate at which these copying errors occur. Though very slowly, we acquire about one mutation every six generations. A few dozen mutations could appear after several millennia. Bible-believing molecular biologist Dr. Nathaniel Johnson downloaded publicly available human mitochondrial genome sequence data to do exactly that. Publishing in an Answers Research Journal, his results show that the number of today's mitochondrial DNA differences exactly match the number predicted by the Bible 6,000 years of human history. Mitochondrial DNA from around the world shows no trace of the 200,000 or so years worth of mutations that the evolution model predicts. And so they say that our particular Homo sapien species has about a 200,000 year existence on the planet. And in that time, we would have a vastly greater number of differences in the genome, mutations in the genome. We don't see that. What we see is consistent with a 6,000-year-old creation of man and a 4,500-year-old bottleneck where we once again came from three men and their wives, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. In a more recent article from 2019, again from the Institute of Creation Research and again from Dr. Jeffrey Tompkins, there's an update in the science. We're, We're growing in leaps and bounds in our understanding of genetic code. It reads as follows. Based on biblical chronologies, we can determine that the global flood recorded in Genesis occurred about 4,500 years ago. After the flood, the earth was repopulated by Noah's three sons and their wives. So we should find genetic signatures of this timeline in human DNA. Well, a number of previous studies by both secular and creation scientists have supported this general timeline. A recent study using extensive, newly available, high-quality DNA sequence data from the human Y chromosome spectacularly confirms the earlier research and solidifies the Bible's history of modern human origins. It really is quite shocking. Again, I'm just barely touching the surface on this, but listen closely. When the chronologies and genealogies of the Bible are analyzed, humans were created about 6,000 years ago as one original ancestral couple, Adam and Eve. 
However, the human genome went through a genetic bottleneck about 4,500 years ago when only the DNA from Noah's three sons and their wives was used to repopulate the earth. This bottleneck must also be taken into account when analyzing DNA. These Bible-based dates conflict with evolutionary speculation that claims modern humans did not arise until about 100,000 to 200,000 years ago from ancestors migrating out of Africa. To help resolve the controversy, two scientists, one a molecular biologist and the other a statistician, downloaded newly available DNA sequence for the Y chromosome that was more comprehensive and covered much longer contiguous DNA regions that had not existed previously. The Y chromosome is particularly useful in studying human pedigrees and mutations because it has no chromosomal counterpart in the human genome with which to exchange genetic information in a process called recombination. When sperm and egg cells are formed in a person, the 22 chromosome pairs, one derived from the father, one from the mother, will exchange DNA segments with each other. Because this does not occur with the Y chromosome, it is more genetically stable and thus very useful as a genetic clock. In this current study, the authors note that if humans have actively been around for several hundred thousand years or more, they should have accumulated eight to 59 times the amount of mutations that we currently observe in Y chromosome DNA sequence. However, the researchers in this current study empirically demonstrate that we only observe about 4,500 years of mutation accumulation in the paternal ancestry contained in the record of the human Y chromosome. In a further article from Creation Ministries International titled Adam, Eve, and Noah as Modern Genetics, Dr. Robert W. Carter adds this. The evidence from mitochondrial DNA fits our model just as neatly as the Y chromosome data. As it turns out, there are three main mitochondrial DNA lineages found across the world. The evolutionists have labeled these M, N, and R. So we will refer to them by the same names. They would not say these came off the ark. They claim they were derived from older lines found in Africa. But this is based on a whole list of assumptions. It also turns out that M, N, and R differ by only a few mutations. This gives us some indication of the amount of mutation that occurred in the generations prior to the flood. Let's assume 10 females, excuse me, let's assume 10 female generations from Eve to the ladies on the ark. M and N are separated by about eight mutations, a small fraction of the 16,500 letters in the mitochondrial genome. R is only one mutation from N. This is an indication of the mutational load that occurred before the flood. Given the assumption that mutations occur at equal rates in all lines, about four mutations separate M and N from Eve. But what about R? It is very similar to N, suggesting that N and R were sisters, or perhaps more closely related to each other than they were to M in the very least. We will never know this side of heaven, but it sure is fascinating to think about. One more line of evidence crops up in the amount of genetic diversity that has been found within people worldwide. Essentially, much less has been found than most evolutionists predicted. The general lack of diversity among people is the reason the out-of-Africa model has humanity going through a disastrous near-extinction bottleneck with only about 10,000 and perhaps as few as 1,000 people surviving. So secular scientists look at the genome bottleneck evident in the human genome and they say perhaps 
an extinction event like a vast volcano occurred that wiped out all of mankind, perhaps down to as few as 1,000 human beings. However, the reason for this lack of diversity is twofold. First, the human race started out with only two people. Second, the human race is not that old and has not accumulated a lot of mutations despite the high mutation rate. Third, there actually was a bottleneck event, Noah's flood. And so they have no evidence of this global catastrophe that wiped out all of mankind, save a thousand people, to create this bottleneck in the genome. The bottleneck in the genome is scientific fact. What caused it is speculation, unless you go to the Word of God. The Word of God is accurate history. The Word of God is inspired and errant and preserved. You cannot know the past unless you know the history. Science doesn't tell you the past. A bone doesn't tell you how it lived. A bone is just a bone. You have to learn from history how that bone lived, what was occurring when that bone was walking, standing upright, and the head on top of those bones was speaking. In a secular article titled How Human Beings Almost Vanished from the Earth in 70,000 B.C., they attempt to give us a bottleneck without a global flood. How Humans Almost Vanished from the Earth in 70,000 B.C., written by Robert Krulwich. He says this, Add all of us up, all 7 billion human beings on earth, and clumped together we roughly weigh 750 billion pounds. That, says Harvard biologist E.O. Wilson, is more than 100 times the biomass of any large animal that's ever walked the earth. And we're still multiplying. Most demographers say we will hit 9 billion before we peak, and what happens then? Well, we've waxed, so we can wane. Let's just hope we wane gently. Because once in our history, the worldwide population of human beings skidded so sharply, we were down to roughly a thousand reproductive adults. One study says as low as 40. 40. Now, they can't possibly know this. This this is speculation, except that they can look to the human genome and see there is a bottleneck in the genome. 40. Come on, that can't be right, says this author. Well, the technical term is 40 breeding pairs, children not included. More likely, there was a drastic dip, and then 5,000 to 10,000 bedraggled homo sapiens struggled together in pitiful little clumps, hunting and gathering for thousands of years, until in the late Stone Age, we humans began to recover. Sounds like one of many movies they've made over the years. (laughs) But for a time, there, says scientist writer Sam Keen, we darn near went extinct. I never heard of this almost blinking out. That's because I've never heard of Toba, the supervolcano. It's not a myth. While details may vary, Toba happened. Once upon a time, says Sam, around 70,000 BC, a volcano called Toba on Sumatra in Indonesia went off, blowing roughly 650 miles of vaporized rock into the air. It's the largest volcanic eruption we know of, dwarfing everything else. Let me cut to the end of this article and say this is his justification for the genome they see in the bottleneck. But many scientists, again, secular scientists, have refuted this article and the pseudoscience behind it that others defend, saying that while, yes, this likely would have darkened the planet for six years, ten years, in the sense of there wouldn't have been much sunlight, it would have been chillier, um, it would have affected the weather, uh, it would not have wiped out life on earth, essentially, because if it wiped out 
every human being, except save 40 or save 1,000. It also would have wiped out every elephant, every dinosaur, every furry critter walking the planet, and certainly many of the species in the seas as well, and they don't see the evidence of that. So it's science fiction in order to justify the actual science they see in the genome without the history of God's Word that is the clear explanation for this bottleneck in the genome that occurred in a global flood where only three childbearing couples survived, Shem, Ham, Japheth, and their wives. One final article, and we'll get back to the Word of God. This one from Creation Ministries International, Where Have All the People Gone?, According to the now prevailing view, the first humans lived over a million years ago. If that is really so, where are all the trillions of people who should either be alive or whose buried remains, potentially fossilized, should be found in vast graveyards scattered around the world? Uh, By the way, not only should you be stumbling over human bones every time you walk out in your backyard, there should be Tyrannosaurus Rex bones. There there should be uh, every kind of fossil Uh, found all over the place. And yes, when critters die on the surface of the earth, they do decompose, um, but there's not nearly enough fossil evidence for the millions and millions and millions of years that secular Big Bang cosmologist evolutionists say the planet has been here and life on it with it. They can't begin to justify their worldview with fossil evidences. Essentially, the entire planet should be covered with dirt that's basically calcium from all the critters that have died but we move on. I worked out how many times the world population had doubled since the first man and woman, allowing for past diseases, famines, pestilence, wars, and infant mortality. The population would probably have doubled at about the rate of once every couple of hundred years, allowing for it to be much slower than the 60 to 70 years it took to double last time. Multiplying the number of times that the population doubled by a couple of hundred years should give a rough idea, give or take a few thousand, of when the first two humans were either created or evolved from the secular viewpoint. Believe it or not, the world's population has doubled only 31 and a half times since the first human couple appeared on earth. This gives us 6,500 years. You can work it out for yourself on your own calculator. A lecturer on evolution once told me that there were never just two people because a whole population would have evolved. If that were so, then that would mean that the human population has doubled far less than 31 and a half times. But to maximize believability of the evolutionary scenario, let's say the population started with only four people at a million years ago. This would mean that the average time that the world's population took to double was about 33,000 years. So it would have taken that many years to get to eight people and another 33,000 years before the world's population rose to 16. That is rather slow growth. By comparison, a lady died in New Zealand in December of 1984 at the age of 112, and she left 450 descendants. Population growth is increasing currently at a rate of approximately 1.8% per annum, or doubling every 39 years. Even if the average time that the population doubled in the past was as slow as every one, uh, once every thousand years, that is one twenty-fifth of the present growth rate, this would put the first pair of humans on earth only 31,000 years ago. So if you, if you take the current rate that our population is doubling and you cut it down by one twenty-fifth, you still only have 31,000 years with our current global population. 
Some people not willing to believe that mankind was created only a few thousand years ago claim that the world's population has been almost wiped out many times, like the Toba eruption. Clearly, it has never been wiped out entirely, while some people will assert that human population has been almost wiped out a number of times without their providing any evidence to back it up. These same people get very agitated if we suggest that the population was nearly wiped out once by a great flood in the time of Noah. Isn't that interesting? So they're all sorts of excited about Toba and all fanciful stories of human catastrophe, near wipeout scenarios, but the worldwide global flood of Noah, no, that can't possibly be true. Why? Because they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. This article closes saying this, we can calculate the rate of population growth starting from about 4,500 years ago, when from the historical details found in the Bible, Noah and his family, eight in total, survived the deluge. That population has to double 29 and a half times to get to the current world population of six and a half billion at an average doubling rate of once every 152 years. Interesting, isn't it? The Bible's time frame of history fits the data. Dear saints, all true science comports to the word of God. There have been many scientific declarations of so-called truth that over the years have later been disproven And we should have known they were not true from the very beginning, like this, the spontaneous eruption of life, the idea that uh, there was a material universe with no life, and then life just happened. We have things like the law of biogenesis, the law of biogenesis, all life comes from life, there are no known exceptions, and yet secular scientists declare that all life came from non-life. That's nonsense. But we press on. Back to the scriptures. We can stand resolutely upon Genesis 9, 19. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. And again, I just touched the very surface, and I touched it quickly. There's much more solid scientific evidence in the genome that points back to Shem, Ham, and Japheth being the bottleneck in the genome. So first point, a fresh start, a fresh start. Second point, a father's sin and a son's disobedience. A father's sin and a son's disobedience. Verse 20 through 24. And Noah began to be a farmer, and he planted a vineyard. Then he drank of the wine and was drunk and became uncovered in his tent. And Ham The father of Canaan saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both of their shoulders, and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father's nakedness. So Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him. A father's sin and a son's dishonor. Isn't it tragic? That Noah's family, under the grace of God, Noah, a preacher of righteousness, Noah and his sons who knew God, they didn't have a question of whether God existed, they knew God, they loved God, they believed God, saved by grace, through faith, not of works. They got on that ark, trusting God as God wiped out all of sinful humanity. They came forth from the ark, 
the only men and women on the planet, the only descendants of Adam and Eve left. They came forth from the ark, much like some of our children come forth from our homeschooling families, much like some people come forth from a Christian commune. They came forth and they found even in that holy seclusion, there was sin. There was yet sin within. Try as we might, this side of heaven, we will not be fully righteous. Try as we might, this side of heaven, we will not be able to raise up godly offspring who are entirely without sin. Sin has radically corrupted us all. Praise God for His astounding grace. Praise God that in Christ Jesus we are made new creatures. The old past, we old all things become new. There's a radical difference. There's a line in the sand of life. We go from blasphemers to worshipers. We go from sinner to saint. We go from unregenerate to regenerate. And yet, we see the continual testimony of Scripture regarding mankind's sin nature, and we find ourselves humbled. We find ourselves humbled whether we look at the patriarchs. We find ourselves humbled whether we look at Noah and his sons. We find ourselves humbled whether we look at the apostles. The only righteous man to walk the earth was the Lord Jesus Christ. And Adam for a brief period before he fell. It's our only hope of salvation. Our only hope of righteousness is outside of ourselves. It is in Jesus Christ. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Our sins are paid for in the cross, and they are multitude. And His righteousness, which is infinite, is imputed unto us. And thus we are declared holy, not because we are innately holy, but because Christ's holiness is imputed unto us. Now, by the grace of God, once we are regenerate, once we are born again, once we are new creatures in Christ, we continue to grow in sanctification. And yet... Yet we can fall, and fall horribly, as we see even in the account of David, a man after God's own heart, a man full of the Holy Spirit, who when he came to his senses after his horrific fall with Bathsheba and his murder of Bathsheba's husband, this mighty warrior Uriah, he cries out once by the grace of God he's found repentance, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. And so let us be humble. Let us take heed lest we fall, and let us know that we are dependent upon God's grace as individuals, as married couples, as parents. We are dependent upon God's grace for salvation and for sanctification and for preservation. And we see that here. Verse 20, fresh off of the ark. Noah began to be a farmer. Nothing sinful in that. He planted a vineyard. Nothing sinful in that. Then he drank of the wine. And I would say, with parameters, there's nothing sinful in that. And was drunk. Up. Now we've stumbled into the sin. And became uncovered in his tent. Now the ramifications of sin. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers, outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both of their shoulders, and went backward and covered their, the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father's nakedness. So Noah woke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him. 
There are those that are quick to rush in to defend Noah, the preacher of righteousness, by saying this is a post-flood change in the environment. He didn't realize the fermentation uh, process was going on and therefore was unduly inebriated. And is it possible? It is possible that, you know, the climate had changed and whatnot, you know, different soil, different climate, whatever, um, that this was a stronger wine or whatnot. But it's the normal biblical word for wine. And so we have the expectation that he knew he was drinking wine. And I'm just going to leave that there. He was drinking wine and he became drunk. What does the word of God say? Well, this is the first introduction of wine in the Bible. In the first introduction of wine, we have Noah, the preacher of righteousness, blowing it. And it affects his family forever. That ought to be a warning to us. There are many sober warnings in the Word of God regarding drink, regarding alcohol. Proverbs 20, verse 1 is one of them. Wine is a mocker, a strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Wine makes you a mocker of God and a mockery of yourself. Wine makes you the fool in the room that others are prone to mock. And we see that with Noah and his son in this sad affair. Wine is a mocker, strong drink, a brawler. Many men and women too, it it makes violent. Their passions come out, they're unchecked, it all starts happy, but it ends bloody. And I think we've probably all seen that. Wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Where is the second major occasion after this in Genesis 9? Where is the second major occasion you see wine? It's in Genesis 19, and this is more horrific yet. Genesis 19, verse 30, Then Lot went up out of Zor and dwelt in the mountains, and his two daughters were with him, for he was afraid to dwell in Zor. And he and his two daughters dwelt in a cave. Now the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is no man on the earth to come in. To us, as is the custom of all the earth, come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve the lineage of our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father, and he did not know when she had laid down or when she arose. And I won't read the rest of the story, but the second daughter did it likewise. And what a, what a horror, what a nightmare, how wicked. And again, uh, Lot... Lot, not a premier example of righteousness, but Lot, uh, we have good reason to believe, is saved by grace and will be in glory. And yet wine led to this debauchery, this tragedy. And God is, isn't he amazingly honest to write this and record this? By the way, these are the kind of things that are in the Bible that actually testify of the authenticity of the Bible. If I was making up, you know, I'm going to make up a book and say it's God's book, I would make you all look good. So everyone wanted to come and be like you, right? What the Bible does is tells the truth like a mirror and shows us our sin and that the only good is in God. Thus, we must flee from sin to God in faith, specifically God's Son, Jesus Christ. And so twice over in Genesis, we see wine unleashing horror and nightmare and tragedy in family. In Proverbs 23, verse 29, it says, Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaints? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness 
of eyes, those who linger long at the wine, those who go in search of mixed wine. Do not look on the wine when it's red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it swirls around smoothly. At the last, it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart will utter perverse things. Yes, you will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea or like one who lies at the top of the mast saying, they have struck me, but I was not hurt. They have beaten me, but I did not feel it. When shall I awake that I may seek another drink? Clearly, the life of that individual, an individual that today we would call an alcoholic. An alcoholic is one who has labored long at the wine. And yes, your body can become quite addicted to wine or alcohol. And in fact, heroin, you can go cold turkey off of and survive. But if you've been long addicted physically to alcohol, you can die if you just cease to partake of it. And so this can be an enslaving not just an intoxicating, but an enslaving matter. And it becomes a pattern of life for many, and it's brought destruction on many families. Many a man who otherwise would have been a faithful husband and father have been taken down by wine and vice versa, wives as well. Many a son has gone astray after drink. And in general, just in general, alcohol lowers inhibitions. It opens the door to a great many sins. Virtually Every criminal who's prosecuted is intoxicated in some way, has alcohol or some other drug in his bloodstream or her bloodstream, although the vast majority of criminals, men, are men. And that has lowered their inhibitions. It's got their, their, what, their, their liquid courage up, and they rob the store, they rob the bank, they commit an act of violence, and they go to jail or prison, depending on how serious it is. And so there are many reasons to be wary of it. One final reason is that of your eternal soul. In Galatians 5.19, and there are many other verses I could look to, it says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, in which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. God. And so drunkenness is right there in the mix of all these sinful lifestyles, sinful lifestyles, to be a drunkard. The Bible speaks of one that today we would term an alcoholic, and alcoholism is a sickness. The Bible holds us accountable. We're not sick, we're sinners. It's biblically a drunkard, a drunkard. So we're accountable for our sin. We're not sick. You didn't catch alcoholism right? Uh, From a bottle. No, you labored long at the bottle or the can uh, to catch alcoholism. It's not a sickness. It's not a disease. It's a sin. And we must repent of it and turn to Christ. And he will set us free of that slavery. And if you're a slave to it, then you shouldn't partake of it at all. If it makes you violent, you shouldn't partake of it at all. If it makes you irresponsible, you shouldn't partake of it at all. If you have a tendency towards foolish behavior when you have a glass of wine, then don't have a glass of wine. For you, just take it off the list. Don't call it your liberty when every time you take your Christian liberty, you end up over in license and blowing it in licentiousness. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 23, the Apostle Paul tells young Timothy, Pastor Timothy, he says, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities. And so certainly there is a medicinal use for wine that is biblical and legitimate. 
Beyond that, yes, you do see celebratory uses of wine throughout Scripture. And so uh, I'm hard-pressed, while giving a strong warning about the dangers, I'm hard-pressed to say, thus saith the Lord, all alcoholic beverages at any level, at any frequency would be sin. I'm not going to misrepresent the Word of God. I could say gluttony is sin, so all pie, cake, and cupcakes, cheeseburgers, french fries, and most everything else we love, pizza, is sin, right? Americans are dying, yes, of alcohol abuse, but they're dying of gluttony, right? So I want to be even-handed and say, enjoy your ice cream and your cupcake and your cake and your pie, but do it biblically, not to the point of gluttony. If it's damaging your health, then really it is a sin issue, and I'm not going to judge you. We need to judge ourselves and be responsible with the temple of the Holy Spirit. I don't want to be legalistic in the realm of gluttony or in the realm of wine. Psalm 104.14 says, He causes the grass to grow for the cattle and vegetation for the service of man, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine that makes glad the heart of man, oil to make his face shine. And Psalm 104 is a whole list of blessings and causes for praise. And so you can't pull wine out of there and say, no, that's only and always a curse and sin. You can't biblically do that. In Ecclesiastes 3.12, we find again that wine is celebratory. I know that nothing is better for them than to rejoice and to do good in their lives and that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It is the gift of God. So talking about food and wine is a gift from God in a celebratory fashion. Again, in Ecclesiastes Chapter 9, verses 5 through 8, it says, For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Also their love, their hatred, and their envy have now perished. Nevermore will they have a share in anything done under the sun. Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already accepted your works. Let your garments always be white, and let your head lack no oil. Again, a celebratory use of wine. And the most evident celebratory use of wine is when the Lord Jesus Christ himself in his first miracle in his public ministry turned water to wine at the wedding in Cana. Wine that they pronounced to be the best of all. It says this, after he made the wine, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior, you have kept the good wine until now. And so the Lord Jesus Christ made real wine at a real wedding for a real wedding guest for a real celebration. And the Lord Jesus is holy, holy, holy God in flesh. And so let us be careful in our rightly dividing the Holy Scriptures, not being legalistic, not being unduly judgmental, uh, but judging ourselves carefully and guarding ourselves lest we play the fool like Noah. Inadvertently, I would suggest, but still, still ended up in a compromised position that brought judgment to his home. So Noah fell to drunkenness. What about Ham? Where's Ham's thankfulness here? Where's Ham's love of his father? Where's Ham's commitment to loving and honoring his father? 
In Hebrews eleven seven, it says, By faith Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Noah was saved by faith. And Noah, in his faith, led his family to the one true God in faith onto that ark that they might be saved physically and spiritually. Where is Ham's thankfulness for his father? Noah's sin aside, Noah's folly aside, Ham's heart was wicked. Ham's heart was full of dishonor for his father. Ham's heart was just waiting for an opportunity to dishonor father and to attempt to drag his brothers into it as well. How tragic. Noah prepared an ark for the saving of his household. Noah himself, an heir of righteousness, which is according to faith. No father is holy, 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 except our Father who art in heaven. But praise God for the Father that He gave you, that loved you and instructed you in the things of God, brought you up to fear God and flee to Christ in faith for salvation. What a precious gift that most of humanity has not known. If you had such a Father, praise God for such a Father. If you had a Father that ushered you onto the ark of Christ from your youngest of days... You should forever wake up and praise your Father in heaven for the earthly Father that He gave you to lead you unto Jesus. What a gift. A gift that most men and women have never known. For the way of destruction is broad and many go thereby. The way of life is narrow and few shall find it. Do not disdain the astounding grace of God to give you a godly but imperfect Father. And as your father, you live in his home. And so at some point, you will see his failure. At some point, you will see his sin, whether it's exactly Noah's sin or some other. At some point, you will figure out your father isn't Superman, that your father isn't Christ on earth, that your father isn't God come down, that your father is yet a man and yet sins. Don't let that be the occasion for your rebellion to rise up. And for you to heap dishonor upon your godly father that led you unto Jesus. I've seen this many times. It is so sad. It is so sickening and unthankful and arrogant and proud. Exodus 20 verse 12 says, Honor your father and mother that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. Honor your father and mother. We live in a child-indulging, child-spoiling, child-honoring, parent-mocking, father-mocking society. That's our society. Spoil the kids. It's all about the kids. What do the kids want? What do the kids want to eat? Every kid gets his or her particular meal to order as if mom's a personal chef. That's madness. You eat what's put in front of you. Do you want to stay alive? That's the last meal you're getting until you eat it. The next one will come after you eat that one. Well, I don't like this. Do you like being alive? It sounds radical, I know. But that's biblical parenting. Eat what's put in front of you and be thankful. Now, if you feed them turnips, that might be on you. You know, (laughs) spinach out of a can. Rotten, slimy, hideous thing. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, have some mercy, right? But a reasonable... Well-balanced, nutritious meal 
well-proportioned, lovingly prepared, should be put out before the children, and they should eat it and be thankful. We live in a child-indulging, child-spoiling, child-honoring, parent-mocking, father-mocking society, and sadly, yes, even that creeps into Christ's church and Christian families. Guard your children and don't allow that temperament. Don't build into it. Don't build your family around the kids. The message of every father ultimately is follow me as I follow Christ. Every father, like every pastor, ultimately, on a larger level, on a church level, my mission is to say, follow me as I follow Christ. And we're marching to war. We're following after Jesus. We're learning to walk in the light of his word. But on a family level, the father says it and the mother says it. And they're striving together as a family unit to follow after Christ. But mom and dad are in the lead. Exodus 21, 15. How serious does God take this? Honor your father and mother. That is the first command in God's Ten Commandments that is horizontal, on a manward level, on a human level. The first four, man to God, vertical. This is the first command horizontally. It's before you should not murder. It's before you should not commit adultery. It's before you should not steal or lie or covet. It's the foundation of mankind, the foundation of all society. Honor your father and your mother. And we need to elevate it back where it belongs. Hold it high, men, fathers, mothers, because without it, every sin follows. And our culture right now has declared war on father and mother, declared war on husband and wife, declared war on the family, openly. They're teaching kids in the public schools that the family unit is bad. In fact, it might even be part of the evil known as white privilege. Honor your father and mother. That your days may be long. It's kind of an implied threat. Exodus 21.15 And he who strikes his father or mother shall surely be put to death. How serious is God about honoring father and mother? You rise up and strike father and mother, you'll be put to death. Do you know who cast the first stone? Father and mother. How often do you think they had to do that? Not very often. Because in a society, we actually uphold the law of God. You shall honor father and mother, and you realize how serious this is. You teach your children, and they learn. Exodus 21, 17 says, And he who curses his father and mother shall be put to death, shall surely be put to death. You strike mom or dad or curse mom and dad under the law of God and the theocracy of Israel, you shall be put to death. How often do you think Johnny was rising up and cursing Dad. Not real often. Leviticus 19.32 says, You shall rise before the gray-headed and honor the presence of an old man and fear your God, I am the Lord. See, what you're teaching your children when you teach them to honor father and mother is to fear God. When you teach them to obey father and mother, you're teaching them to obey God. And we have done a vast disservice to generation after generation of child that has created these man-child, this man-child generation that's running in our streets, burning down our cities. This man-child generation, totally self-engrossed, building whole worlds on the computer, conquering civilizations that don't exist while doing nothing in the real world to advance 
the kingdom of Christ, to see sinners saved, to see Christ glorified, to bring honor to the Lord in living a biblical, Christian, manly, godly life. There's a tragic loss of biblical manhood, husbandry, and fatherhood. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long. One final word on this from Proverbs 20, 20. Whoever curses his father or mother, his lamp will be put out in deep darkness. These are scary verses. <laughs> scary realities in the theocracy of Israel. Now, we're not threatening any children today. They're all safe. But we need to elevate our understanding of fatherhood and motherhood, elevate our commitment to God's law, and this being the first law in the second table, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, and how serious that is, and that it wasn't accidentally placed there, but purposely placed there as the foundation of all society. And when that breaks down, when the family unit breaks down, as it did with Noah and Ham, curses follow. Destruction follows. And next time, we'll find that even in the curse, there is mercy. Even in the curse, there's a connection to the covenant of God's amazing grace. We'll see that next time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you.